0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast. I'm super thrilled to welcome Steve August to the first version of this. And uh, hey, welcome, Steve.
1: Hey, good to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Okay, super.
0: All right. I first became aware of Steve uh, when he was the founder of a digital and mobile qualitative platform called Revelation. Uh, That was years ago. Uh, was uh, ultimately purchased by Focus Vision. And since that time, Steve has, uh, has been an executive and a board member and a coach for many startups and companies uh, along the way. And I've really appreciated the insights that you've posted on LinkedIn and elsewhere uh, about uh, how to build and grow businesses in our space specifically. So super exciting. Now, last October, before I I turned it over to Steve, I'm going to pontificate here for a second, but uh, last October, Steve and I had an opportunity to have dinner uh, with a couple of other luminaries. uh, Tom Anderson from Odentext, Kevin Lani from KL Communications. That was, I think, at the Insights Association uh, Corporate Researchers Conference in Mm Orlando. Yeah, so it's been some time, but... Over the course of dinner, I discovered that uh, you have a really, really cool story in music. Uh, I wanted to impress you with what I had done previously, uh, but quickly realized I was trumped. uh, Because you shared your story about uh, the music that you played back at Brandeis in a band. I think it was called Falling August. Is that right? It was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Falling Uh, August i went pride of brandeis university
0: <laughs> i went straight back to my hotel room and i checked it out and i was totally blown away and it became the soundtrack for my workouts for the next several weeks so i have to thank you for that but
1: awesome
0: <laughs> amazing. i was totally blown I know away. that. super excited about that because i've had a lot of respect for you professionally uh and now personally too so super cool stuff uh I've got a few quick questions for you, if you'll indulge me. I
1: will. I will absolutely indulge you. Okay. So Excited to be here.
0: before we get into the cool music stuff, mm-hmm. um, why don't you give me the story of your, uh, your professional background and how you ultimately found your way into insights and, uh, and why?
1: Sure. Happy to tell that story. Um, like a lot of folks who find their way into the industry, you don't really grow up like dreaming of being a market researcher or an insights pro. Um, it's sort of something that you you find your way to. So I, uh, as you mentioned, went to Brandeis University, had an American Studies degree, which uh, qualified me, qualified me for almost nothing, uh, <laughs> but uh, let me do explore a lot of creative things. And so when I was coming out of school, um, I was doing everything from uh, clay animation video documentary multimedia CD-ROM when that was the next big thing uh, web 1.0 when that was the next big thing this is intelligence server Installations and consulting when that was the next big thing. but so I, I had done a lot of next big things from the 90s and in the uh, along the way I was also playing music as you mentioned and in various guises first with the band and then as an independent uh, song performing songwriter and um, So what happened is I met an amazing woman and my wife, Kimberly, and so she actually was the real researcher in the family. She uh, was the person with the the master's in uh, consumer behavior and was working for a design company, international design company called Fitch when I met her in the mid nineties. And Fitch really was the IDO before IDO really took over the design um, space. Yeah. And yeah. So it was like, you know, Really, they were doing ethnographies back in the late 80s and early 90s before they really you know, got traction in the market research business. And so uh, she was the one doing research, and um, I was the creative technology guy, and that's how we were, we were going along until 2002 when we had our amazing kiddo. Um, and uh, at that point, I was actually working in museum exhibit design of all things, because I had gotten a little bit tired of tech. I wanted to do something interesting, something positive, and museum exhibit design was really cool. It combined a lot of stuff. Great job in the sense of creative fulfillment, really lousy job in the sense of financial fulfillment, (laughs) and so we had to make a choice when we had our kiddo, and we decided to make her business the family business. She had left Fitch and been doing it independently for a number of years, and we said, okay, well, she can make money, uh, and I can make a small fraction of money. Uh, the money that she can make so we we turned that into family business i became the stay-at-home dad and the marketing support guy and the tech guy and the video editor and uh, so i helped to rebrand from kimberly daniels august to kda research and we started getting gigs uh not only for for the in-depth that she was doing but we started playing with some tech as well and i the the way it started was i noticed that she was doing these in-home visits and she would go down to the Kinko's at the time and create these elaborate journals that people would take uh, that she would send ahead FedEx ahead and then people would fill them out and that the whole premise was that she needed to, to understand what she was what the people were doing when she wasn't there directly observing so it's right around the time that blogs are becoming part of the landscape and i said look we've got paper diaries we got web diaries maybe we can make this a little easier you know, without all this, uh, hassle. And, uh, so we started playing with off the shelf block systems and we did our first project in like 2004 where we were just a, a pilot project actually about parenthood and what it, the, the journey between, uh, you know, having your, being an adult and then having your first kid, you know, and like becoming a grown up is what I call it. Right. And, um, and, it, And I remember the the questions we had at the time. We were like, will they share anything? Will they open up? Are we going to get the real story? And of course, they shared like crazy. I mean, they were, it was, and we had both the mom and the dad in the relationship. And it was just amazing. And we got this amazing insight into their world over the course of a week. And we were just like, man, this is almost as good as being there. In some ways, it's better because we're able to do all these different things. And so we started talking about it at, at industry conferences, and people started coming up to us and saying, that's really cool. That's a whole new way of looking at online qual, because at that point, it was really just companies that were replicating focus groups, either through bulletin boards or the initial chat, chat boards. And this is like an ethnographic way to think about it. It's like, what's the mission? Understand people to answer business questions well. Wow. What if we could get really close to those experiences? I think we'd have a better understanding to, do it, to fulfill that mission. And so people started asking us if they could use it. And it wasn't a very user-friendly system, especially uh, research user-friendly. Which <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, But I thought, you know, I know enough about tech. I could probably pull something together. And so that's how, how Revelation got started is we had enough people asking and there was a need. And so in two thousand. Uh, five and six, we built the built our system from the ground up and released it um, in two thousand end of two thousand six, and then started really marketing it in two thousand seven. And um, at the time we were living in San Francisco, we had we moved from San Francisco to Portland. We got a bit of angel funding in Portland, and uh, and then rest kind of took off from there. And I learned how to be this first company I'd ever founded, first company I ever ran. And so took it from my idea to exit and took all the lumps along the way and, sure. uh, but came out with a great outcome and uh, people still using Revelation today. And it's just always, always great when I hear somebody, uh, you know, pipe in and say, Hey, they really love it.
0: Yeah. You know what? I love that story because um, so many people in this industry have fallen into it accidentally. Right. And, and I love the way that you, f- you fell into it because um you know, there was sort of an opportunity that you saw, and you experienced that 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 great uh, insight of seeing that people are willing to share their experiences, and and how you might be able to take advantage of that, and 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 uh, produce an outcome that's that's useful for companies. So, really, really cool story. Um, so, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, and some of the connections to. Uh, to falling August and what you might have learned in your your creative uh, days, but tell us a little bit about uh, your super cool music days back then, Mm. uh, your experiences there, and and maybe the coolest story that you've got from that.
1: Oh, wow, so many stories. Um, Well, uh, I mean, the band came together in 1987. Uh, It was three freshman guys who, we didn't really get on at first, but then did uh, and discovered we had something we had, uh, you know, two really good singers. And uh, I was a, a kind of creative guitar player. I, you know, I was never great at, at like theory and, you know, being technically great, but I could I had come up with stuff. I could pull stuff out of the ether and make, make, make it do some interesting things. And we just started playing around campus and in the coffee house and people dug it. And we more, more than anything, we dug it. And we really enjoyed, you know, uh, what we were able to create. And so we kept doing that and, you know, we got better as a band. We would start out with just the three of us, which we used to joke. We were the Indigo guys uh, back (laughs) when that was a reference that people would get. And then, uh, the, uh, we added a, a drummer and a bass player, and we started to really push, you know, we were sort of Mumford & Sons before Mumford & Sons was a thing. And uh, I think that's, uh,
0: that's a good reference, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything uh, that, that we loved about it, uh, a lot of Mumford & Sons has some of that stuff. So we, um, we started playing around the Boston scene. You know, we played all the, all the clubs there, and uh, we, we got some pretty good gigs towards the end of our run. We opened for the Wallflowers in 1994 at a great club called Night Stage, which is long gone. But it was one of those nights where we were pretty much on fire, and, uh, you know, the local reviewer was like, yeah, the Wallflowers were, were cool, Jacob Dylan, and all that, uh, but boy, that opening band was really something, <laughs> and that was really cool. Uh, it was like, yeah, we were, and that was before bringing down the horse and before he went really, you know, he hit his stride, but it felt like, you know, there was that one night that I think maybe we were the better band that night. And, uh, but it was cool to open, uh, you know, to get that kind of recognition. Um, and then, you know, when I was a singer songwriter later, the band broke up in 94 and I, I kept doing it myself. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I wouldn't. Nobody would ever uh, call me as a, as a real singer, but I'd, I, I could write and come up with tunes. And over the years, I had uh, some really interesting experiences. Uh, uh, I had people covering my songs. I had a, a couple of songs placed on TVs, on uh, uh, a television cop show on Lifetime called *The Division. <laughs> so every now and then I still get ASCAP checks from that. And, uh, We're getting and the, the, That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's every now and then a couple hundred bucks drops out of the sky. I'm like, cool. And, uh, the, uh, uh some cool things I played the Fillmore West. Well, it was just the Fillmore, cause the Fillmore East had, had long since gone and opened up with this, one of the people, the woman who named Essence, who, who, uh, covered a couple of my songs and got to play at the Fillmore and open up for Steve Miller. Uh, on one occasion and Pat Benatar on another occasion. And it was just like, wow, this is like rock and roll. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she she, she and Neil sounded good. Neil Gerardo, her husband and guitar player, they were, they were good. What can you say? But it was like those, those moments were really, really a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, just a a crazy adventure um, through all that, through good gigs, bad gigs, you know, all that. It was just a lot of fun
0: yeah no that's super cool and i've i've noticed that there are some some old fans that are keeping it alive uh posting stuff about your band from back in the day and some material and uh that's always cool it's always a good ego stroke if nothing else so super cool stuff
1: yeah i'm amazed people it's like and these songs are 30, 30 years old now some of them and they're holding up and people are still like yeah i still love that stuff man it was and it was like people were really moved by it. And you just never, you put something into the world and you just never know the impact it's gonna have on people, how it's gonna hit people. And it's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's super cool stuff. So are, th- are there any uh, maybe lessons or connections or um, something that you can connect from, you know, what you did creatively to, uh, to your professional world in, in the insight space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons that comes to mind, um, and this was more when I was doing my own being a performing songwriter, it was this lesson about getting up on stage and getting in front of people. Yeah. And I think this is a lesson that rings true no matter if you're in a, you know, on a stage in front of a, a room full of people, or you're in a in a meeting room, or you're anywhere, is that you have about... 30 seconds to a minute when you start to grab people mm-hmm. and they're all with you for that 30 minute. Like if you go up and present at a conference, they're all with you for that 30 seconds to a minute. Like, and you have that much time essentially to grab their attention, bring them into your world and t- start taking them on a journey. Sure. Right. And one of the things that y- you learn, especially if you get up there and in, in front of people and all you've got you and your guitar is like, you got to do that. Like you can be good. You can be bad, but the last thing you can be is boring and uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's something that it, it sounds like, Oh yeah, it, not everything's a performance. And, and I would argue that you have to approach it that way, whether you're pitching a client, whether you're, you're pitching your employees or a team, whether you're pitching investor is like, there's no, t- you have to grab people. You have to really think about it. And I think, you know in the market research industry there is a tendency to to maybe not to be so reliant and dependent on the data that the story gets lost and the understanding that no matter what you're what you're you're trying to convey you're taking people on a journey you have this opportunity to take them on a journey and to get them to someplace new someplace transformative and to me that lesson has stuck with me and there's a guy uh I used to play around in San Francisco when I was living there, a guy named Matt Nathanson, who went on to do some really good things, got on late night shows and, you know, still doing it to his day. Really, um, really amazing performer. Um, you know, he was a better performer than his songs were at the time, but man, he could grab an audience and they were his almost to me from like the get go. And he right. just, you know, and I just watched that and was like, that's amazing. That's, that's what you got to do. Like that's, that's the lesson that you can take through the rest of life. So that's the biggest thing that that comes to mind for me is is that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so powerful, especially in this industry, when I think for so many years, uh, the objective was to get the right answer, you know, based on the right Mm -hmm. techniques uh, with not a whole lot of thought about how to actually deliver that answer uh, to h- how to influence the organization, just sort of relying on the facts and hoping that 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 does the trick, uh, but things uh-huh. have certainly gotten better uh, i think from from people like you and that that sort of perspective where uh, it 's not just about getting the right answer it 's about how you deliver it uh, and it has to be compelling so uh, good stuff um, all right, so um, what can you tell me about uh, you know i know you've you 've been around and you you 've seen some things, especially uh, in your coaching practice. Um, mm-hmm. What do you see as maybe some of the, the key things that are happening now in the research industry and maybe where it's headed? So a chance to pontificate here.
1: Yes. Well, the, you know, the, the, the question at hand, you know, I think what I see you know obviously for in- person research, this is a super challenging time, like this is what I call a wall event, where you're going along and all of a sudden you hit a wall mm-hmm. uh, if you're in the in person um, side of things that it's a really tough thing to pull off right now sure. but what but I always believe that there's just like really hidden blessings in 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 crisis, and one of the hidden blessings or not so hidden things is like ultimately it comes down to this. Our industry is obsessed by methodology, obsessed by tools, obsessed by, you know, the latest tech, but ultimately what we have to do or what we're here for is to help people make decisions. That's Mm -hmm. it. Right. And how we get people there is, is just evolving. Right. So the fact that analytics like seeing SMR over the last five years start to basically say analytics is part of market research. um, That business intelligence is essentially part of market research. I would say that was like 10 years overdue, maybe, maybe, maybe longer. Because if we really want to step into that role, we've got to be, we've got to think with that mentality is that we want, we want, you know, for as long as I've been involved in market research, the phrase seat at the table has always been, like bandied around when we got to get a seat at the table. Well, the thing is, seat at the table, you get a seat at the table when you're able to like you know, work at a strategic level and help people make decisions. You're a tactical function if you can't do that and you, and you don't necessarily get a seat at that table. So to me, I think all this is the, almost the, the, the way the world is going is helping us, uh, helping research as an industry kind of find its way to that again. Because I, I think we, when when people use that phrase "seat at the table," I think they hearken back to when you know with Gallup and you know back in the days of Jack Michael that that was something that research felt like it was, uh, yeah. but then you know it got increasingly commoditized over the years,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so that is to me. Regardless of what happens specifically for methodology, specifically for industry consolidation, and you're definitely seeing that obviously even the big research companies have consolidated a lot of their units um, you know obviously it's a different time for Cantar uh, and those biggies, and the sample industry is obviously consolidated like we're we're gearing for this next phase where you know, the machines are going to do a lot more of the grunt work, or the factory work, and we're going to have to step up and do a lot more of the human a- and analytical work or the actual delivery of true true insights that move people forward in their decisions. Sure. One of the things that, that always I always felt like as a researcher, even though you're not, you know, a classical researcher would never necessarily give a recommendation, but I feel like you have to step we have to start getting comfortable and in stepping into that space. Right. Because that's where you get a seat at the table.
0: Yeah, certainly. I agree. Especially as you accumulate the knowledge about the consumer, <clears throat> you have to take it to that next step because you're really the expert uh that has the knowledge that that might inform that decision. So excellent. Um, so last couple of questions for you. Uh first of all, as this is a podcast. Uh, are there other podcasts or other resources, maybe blogs or or books that you might recommend either personally or professionally, something that's just in your gut that, oh, man, this is just awesome and I want people to know?
1: Uh, there's so many books. Um, podcasts. Uh, I, I like how I built this. It's always great to hear other people's stories about how they, they went from idea to outsized success. Um, and I think that there's always really important lessons in there. Um, the other, um, for books, God, there's so many. Um, I like the book Deep Work by Cal Newport because it's all about re- reclaiming your focus and attention in a world that's, that's you know, where the best minds of, of Stanford and, and Caltech are coming out and, and, and working on hacking your attention. Right, right. yep. So it's, it's a battle for our attention and I really like that one. I really like, on a great, greater overall human level, Book called "The Four Agreements" by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's a little bit New Agey. Well, in parts, it's a lot, but New Agey. But these four agreements are like the-
0: you live in Portland, right? So, so
1: yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. They hand, hand it out when you, when you get in the city limits. Um, the uh, but it's it's like foundational for, for relationships with others and for yourself. Like it, you know, independent of business or market research, I would say it's one of the best. In a weird way I say it's one of the best business books ever written and it doesn't mention business once. Right. And the reason is business is just an interconnection of relationships. Like when you when you peel away the layers, it's all different. It's just relationships at work for a purpose. And this is book is the four agreements, it's all about navigating and getting strong in relationships. Sure.
0: That's great. I appreciate it. Okay. So one, one last question and, uh, maybe this is just selfish, right? But, uh, I'm super opinionated about music. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm always interested to know this thing since this question can uh, help you understand what makes people tick. So, so it's the classic Mm -hmm. desert Island disc question. So you're stranded on a desert Island. You've got, you've got three
1: records with you. What are they? Mm, That's a tough one. Um, You know, the record that I wore the groove out growing up was the, uh, the record, the the kids are all right. Not the single, but the, the movie soundtrack by the who. So it has a a mishmash of all their stuff. I would have that one because that's like, I can, I'll be listening to the who for the rest of my life. Awesome. Um, they were mad. Love. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. They were my band growing up. And, um, I think right now I'd also have to put the stones exile it'd be a toss up between exile and sticky fingers, but I think I'd go with exile. Um, well, cool. and then, uh, cause whenever I would get down on my desert Island being all alone, I would, I would put in happy and I would get happy again. Uh, <laughs> as I imagine. Now the third one's a tricky one. Cause I do feel like I have to do something a little bit more modern. Um, or, you know, and I, you know, I'm trying to think.
0: It's up to you, man. It's, it's your desert island,
1: so you don't have yeah. to anybody here. You know, you know what I would probably do? I would pick some year in my, my uh, teen life or young adult life, and I would get the k Greatest Hits record from that year. Nice, nice. Just, just to have the, the whole panoply of my, my musical <laughs> evolution
0: k tell Wow. That's, uh, that's something you don't, you don't hear much nowadays. So no, you sure don't. <laughs> Great reference. I'll take it. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Any, any last words, uh, Steve, anything I didn't cover in the questions that I asked
1: that you want to get out? No, I'm good. Oh, no I think I've got everything, everything out there that that, that, that was meant to get out, but I really, uh, uh I just want to return, you know, the, uh, you know, the praise and the gratitude for having me be, be the first, I really, uh, really feel honored. Uh, and I also just want to say, I just, uh, you know, having gotten to know you over the years, I really appreciate, you know, just the way your spirit within the industry, your spirit in life. And uh, yeah, I just uh, want to, you know, throw it back at you in terms of uh, gratitude and appreciation
0: hey thanks so much steve i love it all the work is awesome the people are awesome so hey it's it's easy to be happy about it all so uh super grateful for you joining us on this first episode uh so look out for it soon and uh hey rock and roll research that's what it's all about so talk to you soon steve thanks so much